Hello, and welcome to another edition of Across the States. I'm your host, Pat Fisher, bringing you the premier state policy podcast, courtesy of the American Legislative Exchange Council. And joining us today to discuss the Debt Trilogy reports are Lee Schalk, Senior Director of the Center for State and Fiscal Reform, Thomas Savage, Research Manager for the Center for State Fiscal Reform, and on his birthday today, Jonathan Williams, Chief Economist and Executive Vice President of Policy for ALEC. Thomas, Jonathan, Lee, welcome to Across the States. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Wouldn't be celebrating my birthday any other way than talking about uh, good economic and fiscal reforms. Yeah, doing well. Glad to be here. Should be a great discussion. Definitely. Looking forward to it, Matt. Now, Jonathan, I hope you're going to get some good gifts today, but I know one gift that's being handed to taxpayers soon is a big load of debt under the Christmas tree, a big lump of coal if it's Christmas time. But let's kick things off by going into the background of these reports. Now, it's been a busy month for all three of you when it comes to publishing reports. There was first the other post-employment benefits liabilities report, OPEB. That was released on June 10th. There was unaccountable and unaffordable, UAUA, released on June 24th. And just this past week, the state bonded obligations publication went live on ALEC.org. These may be some relatively abstract terms to most listeners, but what are they and why has ALEC and the Center for State Fiscal Reform focused so much attention on these issues? Lee, we'll go to you. Well, thanks, Matt. It's a little bit of a daunting task to answer that question because we've got so much to dissect here. But these are our three reports. Sometimes we refer to them as our debt trilogy. And as you mentioned, we're looking at unfunded pension liabilities. We're looking at other post-employment benefit liabilities. And finally, state bonded obligations, or sometimes we even call it our state bonded debt report. But with unaccountable and unaffordable, looking at unfunded pension liabilities, we found that year after year, there are trillions of dollars. This year, $5.82 trillion nationwide in unfunded pension liabilities, just under $18,000 per person, $17,748 per person across the U.S. With other post-employment benefit liabilities or OPEB, we're looking at Beyond public pensions, what are state governments offering retired public employees in terms of health insurance, life insurance, Medicare supplemental insurance, and more? When we look at that, we find another bucket of unfunded liabilities this year, $968 billion. And finally, when it comes to state bonded obligations, we're examining the level of obligations that each state has through their bonded debt. And this year, that exceeds $1.25 trillion nationwide, an average of $3,800 per person. So at the heart of all of this, I believe that a lot of this is hidden debt to a lot of taxpayers and even to some legislators. They may not be fully aware of the scope of the problem. And at the heart of it is really out-of-control government spending in many cases. And so in each of these three reports, not only do we want to look at each state individually, we also want to examine which states have made progress and have made valuable reforms, and what can states who may be lagging behind a little bit in that area do moving forward to keep the promises that they've made to their public sector workers, but also to protect taxpayers in the future who may shoulder many of these burdens down the road. And Matt, just to also take it back a few years into kind of how Alec first got involved in this topic, our good friend and former colleague, Bob Williams, who's 
just a legendary figure in the free market space, uh, was a state legislator in Washington state and founded one of the state's uh, first uh, think tanks in the nation, really a free market think tank in Washington state with the Evergreen Freedom Foundation. He came to us uh, years ago. He was on our ALEC board and was a uh, task force chair on tax and fiscal policy task forces, private sector, and came to us well over a decade ago with the idea that you know, why is it that these trillions of dollars of debt and liabilities are building up across the 50 states? No state's immune from this, some better than others. And we'll talk about that. There's some great private sector solutions and Alex solutions to talk about that he was instrumental in bringing to us. But, you know, why is it that the mainstream media, this falls below the radar? Now, honestly, this is a wonky area of policy work, right? There's lots of you know, uh, in the weeds issues here at play. And it's not you know, something that headline news is going to report on every day. However, when you look at a family of four, you add up the per capita liabilities in these three reports that we're talking about, we're talking about $100,000 for a family of four across the country. For every, every family across the country, that's a massive liability in future tax increases. It's a massive problem for state budgets in that they may need to cut back on education or healthcare or transportation spending in order to address these liabilities. And so it is really because of Bob Williams, his group, State Budget Solutions, that then became a part of our ALEC and our Center for State Fiscal Reform team that we have spent so many hours over these last years dedicated to being really one of the only organizations in America producing this kind of original research to give to legislators and concerned taxpayers of this massive group of liabilities that's sitting out there that's not talked about nearly enough. So yeah, by now, going over to you, Thomas, it's clear that these post-employment benefits, public pensions, state bond obligations, the magnitude of this crisis is going to affect all Americans. But just for the average, you know, working class American, everyday citizen, how big of a hole are we in, not just as a state house, as you know, a financial sector, but them in particular? How does this impact them on an individual level? How is that impact felt in the household? It's definitely important, Matt. The best way to think about it in broad terms, uh, I think of uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist, James Buchanan, same name as the president. Buchanan was doing some work about 50, 60 years ago, and he put it plainly and simply, government debt is a future tax burden on future generations. And as Jonathan and Lee had mentioned, government debt is real costs on families. You know, it's $100,000 of debt for a family of four. And those tax revenues that are going directly to pay down the debt are being taken away from infrastructure, from public safety, from education. And they're going to pay these massive unfunded liabilities, state debt. I like to run the numbers. And I looked at a state, Illinois, which you'll see in our debt reports is definitely one of the states that needs improvement. And taken all together, pensions, OPEB, and state bonds Per capita, that's a cost of about $47,747 per person in the state of Illinois. Wow. You know, what can that money buy you? I looked it up this morning. An incoming freshman at the University of Illinois, the cost for a full year at Illinois State University, and that includes tuition, room and board, books and supplies, and other miscellaneous expenses. The cost of a full year is $33,060. So the money that has to go to pay down this debt, you could pay for a full year at Illinois State University and still have just shy of $15,000 left over to invest or take yourself on a nice spring break trip or you know 
save it or save it and invest it. That's unbelievable. So $33,000 and you get a good used car. That's just an insane amount they could have used with this money, but instead it has to be invested in taxes because of this problem. I want to pivot over to the reports now and I'll break it up into three groups. One of the most stunning stats that I read in this trilogy is that there's $17,000 worth of unfunded pensions per capita in America, just the pensions. Now, Jonathan, can you walk us through the unaccountable and unaffordable report and explain how public pension liabilities have become such an albatross around the neck? And after that, Lee, can you discuss the post-employment benefit liabilities and how they further complicate the equation for state houses? And finally, Thomas, we'll throw it over to you for the state bond obligations report. Well, sure, Matt. And in a nutshell, the unaffordable and accountable report now in several years into this, as I mentioned, Bob Williams came to us with this concept because Bob, as a former auditor, said, you know, state and local governments aren't playing honest with the accounting. There's really some funny numbers being used out there. And I didn't know this until really digging into it a decade or so ago. The difference between private sector accounting and government accounting is a huge difference. Government accounting doesn't follow the generally accepted accounting principles that we see in the private sector. They follow the GASB, the Government Accounting Standards Board principles, where if you were a CEO or a CFO in the private sector and tried to use the kind of accounting that governments can use when it comes to pensions and other liabilities, you'd actually be in prison. That's not even a joke. I mean, this is kind of Enron-style accounting that people go to jail for in the private sector that is commonplace in the public sector with the state and local government-defined benefit plans that are left out there. Another big trend that we've seen over the years is uh, because of this accounting difference, 20 or 30 years ago, almost all private sector companies had their retirement plan switched to the 401k defined contribution model and away from this kind of expensive old defined benefit model that state and local governments continue to use. And so there's this widening gulf and a gap between the public sector and the private sector, mostly driven because of the accounting differences and I think some real accounting of the costs. And so that's what our report does, is it actually takes away the bad accounting that state and local governments use and uses a more prudent assumption about the future. We can't just assume that we're going to earn 8% every year for the rest of the next 30 years and try to grow our way out of the problem, that we actually use some prudent accounting principles that Bob Williams brought to us when he brought to us this concept of the report. And so we detail this widening difference between public and private sector. And one other aspect of this is we kind of give the state-by-state unfunded liabilities and when it comes to policymakers, and I, when we talk about this, is this is a the right thing to do. It's the way that we can keep the promise to current workers and current retirees is by looking at making future changes for new hires coming into the system. And let's all you know face it, we know people that are going to the workforce today. It's a different generational approach to employment than it was 30 or 40 years ago, where people coming to the workforce today, you know, maybe plan to have five or six or seven or eight jobs in their first you know, half of their career versus their parents or their grandparents' generation that worked for 30 or 40 years for one company and then retired from that company. And so just this mobility of millennials and, and others coming into the workforce, different dynamics at play, it actually is good for young workers to, as states look to transition into more of the 401k flexible retirement plan approach. And it obviously is good for taxpayers and it makes sure that we can honor the promises made to current workers and current retirees as part of the current systems out there. So that's part of the dynamic we look at. We survey the landscape of just how big and bad these liabilities are. And then we look at some of these solution sets as of the dynamics between public and private sector and how states can start to get out of this hole that's been really accumulating for decades now. 
And on OPEB, we talk about these three reports and how wonky they are. OPEB may be arguably the most obscure. And so with unaccountable and unaffordable, where we're talking about unfunded pension liabilities, that's a huge number. OPEB, it's very similar, but just on a much smaller scale. So the total unfunded liabilities for OPEB, which again, we're talking about benefits for public sector workers like life insurance and healthcare, we're talking about $968 billion or $3,000 for every man, woman, child in the US. But it's very important for us to make sure that people are reminded that this is out there and that this is another area where reform is needed. And we have seen, and this is detailed in our report, some states make strides in the right direction. Indiana, for example, we talk about how they've shrunk their unfunded liabilities for OPEB by 11% from $620 million to $552 million. And a lot of the same concepts that we discussed for reform on pension liabilities are also applicable to OPEB. Another thing I'll point out, and this is very similar across the three reports, but the per capita rankings are very useful, I think. And the three states that had the highest OPEB liabilities per capita in this year's report were New Jersey, Hawaii, and Alaska. And then the states with the lowest per capita were Nebraska and South Dakota, actually at $0 per person, and then Kansas at just $0.05 cents per person. So this is another area of policy that may not be as well known as I said, but is very important for us to shine a light on and something that has been very useful, I think, to our members over the last several years. And definitely, and I'm jumping on that too, state bonded obligations. That report specifically looks at debt issued by state governments and their component units and sort of looking at the time schedule of how long is it going to take states to pay these off? What is the quantity of this debt? You know, you think of bonded debt, it's traditionally what we would call hard debt as opposed to the soft debt of pension and OPEB liabilities. And like Lee said, you know, those per capita numbers are really helpful because it puts into perspective just how much is this going to cost your average American? It's very easy to talk about the trillions and trillions of dollars of debt. And sometimes, you know, when you're talking with such large numbers, people's eyes tend to glaze over. So you always want to put this in real terms for people and what this means. And really, state debt, as we said before, government debt just means future taxes. That's taxes on our children, on our grandchildren, and future generations who haven't been born yet, but they're already saddled with this burden. Definitely. So going over to you, Jonathan and Thomas now, Alec has been ahead of the public on this issue, as you guys mentioned, for years. Can you both explain the difference between the defined contribution 401k model and the defined benefit traditional pension models for our listeners? And how does defined contribution model better protect both pensions and state finances? We'll go to you first, Jonathan. Well, I think the last part of that is is really key. And that is, you know, we're big fans of a honoring the promises you've made. If you're going to have a defined benefit system, fund it well and honor those promises. And uh, that's been a key element of our work for going back a decade plus. However, as you look at the new hire piece, as we've talked about, I mean, the way to honor the promises is by stopping digging these holes any deeper and really transitioning new hires into more of a hybrid or a 401k style 
plan. And one of the reasons why the 401k style plan is, I think, superior for especially young workers coming into the workforce is states have pretty complicated rules that they call vesting rules. And they will go from either you have to work five or eight or even 10 years in some cases with your employer, in this case, state or local government, before you're fully vested in the old style defined benefit plan. And so for workers that plan to have several careers or several jobs in their first even 10 years of their career, they're never going to hit their vesting period or even be eligible for the defined benefit plans. And so defined contribution plans, I think, are superior for them in that they give them a portable asset that they own and they can take with them from job to job. So I think it's something younger employees absolutely value having that flexibility, not to mention that it is good for taxpayers. The other thing, we talked a little bit about the accounting games that get played, and this kind of leads from accounting into the politics a little bit, which is when it comes to defined benefit plans that exist in so many of the state and local governments still today, they are have this dynamic called the uh, assumed rate of return, what we talked about that is way too high, that oftentimes hides the liabilities. But another thing that they have is their required contribution that the state government must make as part of the appropriations process normally. And states have sometimes gotten away from not not making their full required contribution, which of course reduces the defined benefit plan going forward. And with the defined contribution model, this uh, funding is 100% upfront that the employers put in their employer match as part of that plan. 100% upfront is funded. And there's no question around the political game of, you know, we get to the budget uh, negotiations as we've all seen in Washington, D.C. and state capitals get very messy. Oftentimes, the losers of that are the pension systems that don't get the full contribution. Of course, that is one of the big reasons why states have fallen behind in addition to many of the others. This is a huge problem that politics gets in the middle of good pension policy in so many ways. This is just one aspect. There's another big one that I think we'll talk about a little bit later, which is the politically driven investment decisions made by the defined benefit plans. That is a pernicious issue that has cost states and retirees billions of dollars in foregone returns. But I think one of the underreported benefits of the defined contribution model is those contributions from the employer are made 100% upfront in the year that they're earned, and they're not subject to the political games that get played around state budgets in the appropriations process and pension contributions. Great points, Jonathan. And to jump on that too, the key feature of defined contribution is flexibility. As Jonathan mentioned, you have younger Americans working multiple jobs over the course of their lifetime. Just this past year, the Bureau of Labor Statistics came out and said that Americans born between 1980 and 1984 held an average of eight jobs between the ages of 18 and 32. Wow. Half of those jobs were held between the ages of 18 and 22. So they are changing jobs more frequently than older Americans, and they need retirement and benefit savings that follow them wherever they go. As Jonathan mentioned, you know, so many young workers don't make it to the vesting period, so they're paying into a retirement system that they don't get to see the benefits for. And that's especially prevalent among teachers, public school teachers, who for one reason or another, might leave the state for another job or change careers entirely and leave the teaching system. They've paid into that pension system, but they're not going to see a dime of those retirement savings. And on top of that, too, as Jonathan mentioned, states don't always make the full annual required contribution. And that's the contribution that's required to 
one, pay the normal cost for the year, and two, pay down any debt from previous years. And things get very politicized. As Jonathan mentioned, you know, it's those contributions kind of fall victim to that. And Illinois is another bad example of this where they don't go by government accounting standards to determine what they need to contribute every year. They have their own set of accounting in state statutes and say, we just go by the statute and this is what we contribute and we don't bother with government accounting methods of annual contributions. And that in part is one of the reasons why Illinois pensions are so poorly underfunded. I want to discuss the overall layout of the United States as we close. What states are taking action to follow ALEC model policy and address these crises? I know Michigan's one that adopted this years ago, and they're already on more stable ground. What states are in desperate need of change? You just mentioned Illinois there, Thomas. What other states in America are headed towards the brink of financial ruin if they don't tackle this crisis? We'll go to you first, Lee, then we'll go to you, Thomas, and we'll finish out with you, Jonathan. Well, as I mentioned in OPEB, we see New Jersey, Hawaii, Alaska sort of bringing up the rear with some of the most unfunded liabilities. With our pension liabilities, it's a pretty dire situation in a lot of the same states, you know, Connecticut, Illinois, Alaska, and with bonded debt, Connecticut, Alaska, Hawaii are also in a pretty bad spot. But one other highlight that we mentioned this year for unfunded pension liabilities was Tennessee and the reforms that they implemented in their state. And I think it's important to point out that, you know, we do want to talk a lot about investment and avoiding the ESG style investing, but it's important to note, and we talk about this in the report, you can't invest your way out of this problem. You're not going to dig out of this hole just by how you, you invest. And so the reforms that Jonathan and Tom talked about transitioning to defined contribution or, you know, even it hybrid style plans that are going to be a better alternative to the status quo, those types of reforms are going to be key to solving these issues. And so I I think that's an important point to make. Great points, Lee. You know, to sort of jump on that as well, I want to highlight specifically in our bonded debt report, as Lee mentioned earlier, a lot of the root causes of government debt problems are spending problems. And Many of the states that you know need improvement with pensions and OPEB also need improvement on handling their debt. And at the root of that, you have to look at why is the government spending so much money? And we recommend, as you'll see, it's available in our Alex State Budget Reform Toolkit and summarized in our bonded debt report, what we priority-based budgeting. And there it starts with five key questions. What's the role of government? What are the essential services government must provide to fulfill its purpose? How will we know if government is doing a good job? What should all of this cost? And lastly, when cuts must be made, how will they be properly prioritized? It's not just about the debt. It's also a spending problem because with debt, you're spending today, but the cost is being put on the future. Right. Jonathan? Well, so across the map, I mean, there's some really interesting takeaways when you look at the apples to apples comparisons in these reports. And one of the really the existential financial crises facing states today is addressing these liabilities properly. I think we've got some great tools within the ALEC 
toolkit, so to speak, on this issue, whether it's shoring up defined benefit plans, looking at hybrid options, transitioning new hires to defined contribution style plans. You know, and this is something that red state and blue state legislators alike need to, to pay attention to because you look at some of the states that have the biggest, I think, threats ahead. It's blue states like Illinois and New Jersey and Connecticut, but it's also red states like uh, Kentucky and Mississippi and others that struggle with high levels of unfunded liabilities. And so I think there's something for everyone. When you look at the, the side of this, that the states that have gotten things right, you know, Utah has been a great example for a decade ago, transitioning to more of the hybrid style approach and former Senator Dan Lillianquist really spearheading that and being very engaged with us at ALEC as part of that process. And of course, Utah, as a result, has been one of the states that's improved the most over the last number of years in our report. And of course, maintains the number one ranking for the most competitive state in America when it comes to its tax and, and regulatory policies in our rich states, poor states report. Indiana, a state that works. Tom's now a state, a state that under Mitch Daniels and, and Mike Pence and the legislators there have done some amazing things for a turnaround. And there's a really interesting bilateral comparison that we talk about in several of our reports of Indiana versus Illinois, you know, neighboring states, but very, very different approaches to how they handle debt and liability issues. You know, Wisconsin, a state that's really done some great reforms under Scott Walker and things that have made their pension system very sustainable relative to others. Then Tennessee, the state with the lowest amount of unfunded liabilities in the pension system of any state in America, something that CNBC actually wrote about recently and featured a story about our pension report talking about, well, Tennessee has no state income tax. We think that they can stay competitive because they've actually been able to keep liabilities low because as Tom mentioned earlier, these liabilities, they directly affect future economic competitiveness and where businesses are looking to invest because businesses look at these as reported pieces of data on financial statements. They're looking to invest in a new facility or move their headquarters they're not only thinking about the current tax burden, they're thinking about future tax burdens. And these absolutely, these liabilities and debt burdens are future tax burdens. And so such a connection between these reports and then economic competitiveness in the years ahead, let's say in our rich states, poor states report. So something here for everyone. This is an really an existential topic for legislators and taxpayers across the country to learn more about. And of course, this is part and core of Alex's educational mission as an organization to provide this good nonpartisan data for everyone to take something back to their states and helps you learn something new from our findings. Indeed. For our listeners, if you want to learn more, go online to alec.org publication. There you'll find all three reports in our debt trilogy, the other post-employment benefit liabilities report, unaccountable and unaffordable, and the state bonded debt obligations publication. Jonathan, Lee, Thomas, thanks for joining us today on Across the States. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and be sure to tune in again next time for more of the Premier State Policy Podcast. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.